today we are at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to ministry. Thank you for the Butri family and pray your blessing upon them. I pray that the transition here is as seamless as possible, that they feel loved by our church family here. And Lord, as we open up your word, we ask that you would speak through it to us, not just for information, not just for a feeling of conviction, but for true transformation to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're back into our study of First Peter, and I'm actually really excited that this is our first message of the new year, chapter 5, starting here in 2015. And mainly because this is a message about God's leadership for the church. And I love the church because the church was purposed here by God. And it reveals the heart of God, or at least it should reveal the heart of God. And I know that the church doesn't always do this well, but we are purposed to reveal the heart of God to the world. That's our purpose. The headship of the church is Jesus, and the church is the bride of Christ. And a couple of important questions we're going to be addressing this morning are... Who leads the church? And how does the leadership function in the church? And so this is really timely for us here at Regeneration because in the next few months, we are going to be looking, praying about the leadership in our church, specifically the elders of our church. So please be in prayer with us about this because in the next few months, we're going to be going through this process. And so when we look at leadership, oftentimes we take a look at political leadership structures, and that's what we typically look at. So if we look at a few extremes that the world has in terms of political structures, we can look at totalitarianism or dictatorship on one side, and we can look at democracy on the other side. And these are the lenses that we tend to look through when we look at church piety, right, church government. So we look at dictatorship or we look at democracy. And so we tend to look at dictators like Kim Jong-un of North Korea. So if we look at extremes, we look at something like that, and then this is how some churches are run. And I don't know if you guys have experienced being a part of a church that is run in this sort of a way with a dictatorial, is that the word for that? Yes! From one dictator to another, no. With that sort of a senior pastor at the helm. And then we have other churches that are run more like democracies where everyone in the church has the same vote and everyone just kind of puts their vote in and so it's just a matter of vote. So we have this autocracy and we have this democracy, but the church is not to be governed in either of those methods of polity. See, the church is a theocracy, right? So we are a community governed by God, not by votes, not by a single person. So we are governed by God, we are governed by the Word of God, as we will read here, and it gives leadership to some, not one, and not all, but some, who will lead others 
while all are accountable to the leadership of Jesus and his word. So God has purpose for some to lead others in the church, and everyone is responsible in following Jesus and following his word, theocracy. In the verses we're looking at this morning, we'll see leaders referred to as elders, shepherds, some other Bible translations use the word overseers. And so we'll look at what the Bible has to say about leadership structures. And so let's start out by looking at the Old Testament, because the Old Testament church structures are kind of what was the framework for how the New Testament structures were formed. And so let's look at Exodus chapter 18 to start out with. And this is a framework of leadership here, Exodus chapter 18, which we will read is a plurality of leadership, right? Not a singular person, not everyone, but there is a plurality of leadership. It's not just Moses, and it's not everyone. It's multiple people here. And so some background before we enter into these verses in Exodus chapter 18. God delivered his people out of bondage in Egypt, and Moses' father-in-law Jethro which is an awesome name, came to visit Moses during this time, right? And so Jethro sees what's happening and the community is thriving and things are going great. So he rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done for Israel, for his son-in-law, for his daughter Zipporah and all these people here. And so while there, Jethro saw that all the stuff that Moses was doing for the people and the way that he was going about it wasn't good. So Jethro had something to share with him, and we pick up the story, Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves." So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. And if you look at the leadership structures in the New Testament, you'll be able to see all that we've read here in Exodus 18, in that it was a framework for those New Testament structures. And I'll share with you an example of this. Acts chapter 11, verse 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And you notice that elders were already in place to receive financial gifts through Barnabas and Saul. And if we stick into Acts, jump over to chapter 14, verse 23, and we read of Barnabas and Saul or Paul appointing elders. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
People converted to Christianity, and as Christians shared the Gospels, more people were converted to Christianity. Churches were planted, and Paul and Barnabas knew they weren't able to be at all the churches at the same time, so they appointed elders to lead in those respective churches. And this structure of leadership was carried over from that Old Testament framework, from Exodus 18. And if you hop on over to Acts chapter 15, where we find the Council of Jerusalem, in this chapter, you'll read of the apostles and the elders making decisions for the church. You jump over to Acts chapter 20, and you'll read of the apostle Paul addressing the church leadership, the elders in Ephesus, and look at what Paul wrote to them or said to them in Acts 20, verses 27-28. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now notice that it is the Holy Spirit who makes one an overseer, an elder, a shepherd. Someone else doesn't make another person an elder. Elders don't make elders. People do not make them. The Holy Spirit does this. And so sure, the congregants in the church community recognize and we identify elders who are already ministering amongst us as elders. The ministries they are already involved in show their abilities as an elder. And we're simply recognizing what the Holy Spirit has already done in them. The Holy Spirit makes them overseers, elders, shepherds. And so we look at the qualities of an elder, the characteristics of an elder, and to, to see this, we can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. And if you hop over two chapters, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes more about elders here, and he, he writes, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, I don't share this with you so that I get a pay increase. But that being said, thank you, elders. They did do a review, and I did get one, so thank you. I share this with you because, as elders, we have been thinking about making changes to our bylaws to allow for further plurality of leadership, where we have elders who are more focused on the ministerial side of the church, such as prayer and teaching and preaching and vision and pastoral care, and other leaders are focused more on organizational aspects of the church, and this is still in discussion. This is still stuff we're talking about and still things we're considering for our church. So we've just scratched the surface about leadership, and we haven't even looked at 1 Peter chapter 5 yet, right? That was all your intro. Now we'll get into 1 Peter chapter 5. We have responsibilities of being an elder. So here, verse 1, 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter exhorts elders as a fellow elder. A fellow elder. It's a position he had firsthand experience in. And when he wrote this, he then writes about witnessing the sufferings of Christ. And so perhaps in reference to Jesus suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, not sure. And then he also wrote about being a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And perhaps he's writing about his firsthand experience about being at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Don't know for sure. Why did he point out those two firsthand experiences with Jesus? Why did he point that out? Well, I think it's because it gives him an incredible amount of credibility to write what he wrote. That he was indeed made an elder by the Holy Spirit, by God, and that he writes with authority when instructing the church on these matters of leadership. But it's not that Peter's getting on his high horse and saying, like, you guys need to listen to me and this is how it is. Because in a few verses, he'll be heading into writing about humility. And if he was writing from this top-down approach, why would he include a term such as fellow elder? Right? Wouldn't he say, like, Jesus is the chief elder and I'm his assistant, right? Or something like that. I don't know. So I don't think Peter is talking down to anyone. I think he's pointing out that even though he had these awesome experiences with Jesus, he's still one of us. He's just a fellow. He's a fellow elder. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Elders have people under their care. Right? They shepherd. This is what they do. They shepherd people who God has placed among them. God placed that responsibility on an elder. They don't pull people into their flock with their own agendas. They don't kind of manipulate situations so that they can be in places of leadership. And you take a look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. It reads, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life. See, some people claim to be leaders, leaders in the church. But what is the outcome of their way of life? There may be a claim to be faithful to the word of God. There may be a claim to have godly conduct. But what is the outcome of their way of life? Now, once you've considered the outcome of their way of life and you've ascertained that they're worthy of following, then what? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, someone is made an elder by the Holy Spirit, and when an elder recognizes this leadership position, the elder also recognizes that people are under their care, that God has placed people under their care. And if under an elder's care, in order to thrive, all parties need to submit to the headship of Jesus as the head of the church. All parties need to submit to his word and to place God as the epitome of an example of who to follow. The place of an elder is not ultimately about respect or status, esteem, standing, rank, or even honor, even though it mentions double honor there. Just because someone's been at church for a while doesn't mean that it's their turn to be an elder or that we should make them an elder. To recognize someone as an elder is to recognize God has given them 
an extra load to care for people. And if we make someone an elder when the Holy Spirit hasn't, we've just burdened them because the elder is accountable for those under their care. Elders are held accountable to God for the care of the church, whether you're a lay leader volunteering or you're in full-time ministry as an occupation like it is for me. Now, for those who are current elders, isn't this fun to hear? Great. You will be held accountable for the care of his church. The responsibility of the elder is to keep watch of those God has put under our care. Now, the Western church has kind of corrupted this position of elders. We've even changed the definition of shepherding because in biblical times, to associate someone with being a shepherd wasn't something that was of esteem, right? A shepherd was the lowest guy on the organizational chart, right? So you'd think whatever your organizational chart is, and at the bottom, that's the shepherd. So to say one is an elder, overseer, a shepherd wasn't something, uh, it wasn't a compliment outside the church, right? Not at all. Now, in many parts of the world today, to say you're an elder of the church is actually bad news. It's not a good thing. If you are an elder in the underground church in China, this is a position of harassment, discrimination, intimidation. It puts you and your family at risk. You're monitored by folks that don't want you to be there, influencing them the way that you are. And so like that of the early church, it was risky to be recognized as a leader of the church. We don't have to deal with that here, do we? So when Peter wrote this letter, it wasn't like being an elder was like a good thing, a cool thing. They were persecuted. You recognize your life was in danger, but as a shepherd, you put your life out there to protect, to provide, right? To direct, to teach, to feed those under your care. And the main tool of an elder is the Bible. If it's not the Word of God, then what's the difference between a good, moral, experienced, wise person off the street? What's the difference? It's the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of people that the elder is to possess. It's God's word that has authority, not a person's words. And we see what an elder is supposed to do. Elders are to shepherd, protect, monitor, alert, and love those under their care. But it's not just what elders do, it's how they do it, the way that they shepherd. Verse 2 here, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. See, elders don't look after those under their care because they feel forced like they have to. They look after those under their care voluntarily. They want to out of their own accord, right? Not civic, anyway. So we exercise oversight. We serve willingly. We serve cheerfully. And you take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. It instructs, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Elders serve freely, eagerly, and they serve under the leading of the Holy Spirit, not based on what's happening around them. And look at the latter part of verse 2 here. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Elders exercise oversight. They serve sacrificially. Now, some may argue that pastors who are elders shouldn't get paid, which I've been told by some people here, which I think swings too far to one end. If 
pastors, of elders, were not to get paid, then why did Peter write, not for shameful gain? Wouldn't he have written, not for any gain? Wouldn't he have written that? So the cautionary advice from Peter to elders is that of shameful gain, with the assumption that the pastors and elders do get paid for their work. So pastors, elders get paid to serve, minister freely, not that their ministerial efforts are for free. And so some elders are bivocational. And all the elders at our church, except for me, they all have full-time jobs and they serve at the church as elders. And that's what I did before entering into full-time ministry, bivocational ministry for 10 plus years. And elders like me, like other pastors, are freed from the obligation of jobs outside of the ministry to dedicate completely my time and efforts to that of the ministry. And in order to do that, there is compensation for the work in the ministry in order for me to physically survive. So elders serve sacrificially, not selfishly, willingly, not under compulsion. How else are they to lead? By being exemplars. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I have a child, and I won't say which one. I have four, so it's going to be harder for you to figure out, right? So. But at one point, she wanted to be a teacher. And I thought it might be because she wanted to follow in her mom's footsteps. Right? Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Right? And so I'm thinking all oh, this good stuff, right? And I'm thinking because she wanted to positively impact children's lives with educating them. But that's not the reason she wanted to be a teacher. She told me so she can boss kids around. <laughs> so that she could be the one giving a bunch of homework. It's just how she felt about school at the time, right? And she's like wanting to inflict vengeance on these... <laughs> Poor innocent children 20 years down the line. And so this was a really good teaching moment for me. And I was like, go for it! So we talked about this stuff and like why you want to pursue these things, the motivations behind these things, the intentions behind these things. And so now she's open to other pursuits without the domineering aspects. So why does one want to be an elder? Why do you want to be an elder if you do? Why does one want to serve in a leadership capacity in the church? And for those of you who don't, this is a question for you to have for those who do. This is something for you to consider when you see people who say they want to candidate for this or they desire this position, which is noble. But these are some of the questions to be going through your mind as we're discerning who to add on into our leadership structure here at the church. Is there a hint of domineering in the motivation of them wanting to be an elder? Is it an issue of control? Is it an issue of something that is just not pure? Or is it because they want to be an example? You know, they've followed Jesus for a while, they know the Word of God, and they're like, you know what, I need to step up for the church, and I'm an example. How the Word of God is properly used in their life, and how they've practiced spiritual disciplines in their life, and how their life is lived in purity with their spouse. How their children are raised if they have them and how care and compassion is extended to those hurting in our community, how they're serving our community. And who's all of our example? Jesus. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Elders exercise oversight not under compulsion, not because they have to, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering, but being examples. And what can elders look forward to? Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now you notice that we have a chief shepherd. We are under the authority of Jesus and his word. We are held accountable to Jesus and the word of God. And so in these next few months, we'll be in prayer about the elders in our church to add to that eldership or to keep it the same number, to reduce it. And in our church's history, I have to confess to you, we haven't been perfect. Far from it. There have been times we've said no to some people when we probably should have said yes. And there are other times we've said yes to people when we probably should have said no. And we're currently asking, praying for wise decisions to be made in our church. And these decisions are going to be made in March, but we're in the process of that right now. We need to remember that the chief shepherd is returning, that Jesus is coming back, and we are going to be held accountable to him, which is a frightening enough prospect for me so that I'm not afraid to make some people mad. I'm not afraid to make some people angry or upset at me or unsatisfied with me because I won't or I haven't done what someone wants me to do. Ultimately, when Jesus returns, I'll be held accountable as an elder of the church, as will the other elders of our church. And we need to do as God has led us. He's coming back. We can't let people in the church force our hand for a certain thing or outside influences or for the sake of diversity or other types of agendas or political things or anything like that. We are led by God. And we have to do as He leads He's coming back. So how are we doing? Those of you who desire to be an elder, how have you done so far in your family, in your relationships, in your character formation? How have you done so far? Will the unfading crown of glory be something for us to look forward to, or have we not done so well? We invite those of you in the church to give us feedback of these candidates that come forward of the people we're considering to be elders. Let us know if they fall under the criteria shared here in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 3 in Titus. This unfading crown of glory James refers to as the crown of life in James chapter 1 verse 12 as does John in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. Now this word crown in its cultural context refers to that wreath or that garland which was given to a victor, you know, when they won a race. It was their prize, this garland on their head. Have you guys seen kind of like different bills or things, uh, former Olympiads and things, like you see this fancy little thing there? Which those receiving Peter's, James, and John's writings, they would have been very familiar with that kind of a context. Like, oh yeah, that, that, that wreath, that garland, I know exactly what he's talking about. And while those who won in the public games received that crown, that wreath, that garland around their head as a mark of a victor. You know, they won their race, they won their event. It's to have a distinction amongst people that they have an exalted rank, right? They came in first. We don't receive crowns for that. 
We don't receive crowns for being fast or whatever. Our crown is of righteousness. We receive crowns of righteousness. And there isn't just one. Or there's no ranking. You receive the crown if you're righteous. Difference between the crown those received as victors of public games and those who receive crowns of glory and crowns of life is that the crowns from God, they're unfading. Soon those garlands wilt. Right? They don't last forever. Now think about this. How many things really last forever? How many things last forever? What do you have that lasts forever? See, it's not just elders who receive the crown of life. It is those who are faithful, right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And it's not like those of us who receive crowns wear them boastfully, like, hey, check it out. I got it. Check this out. We recognize who the chief shepherd is. We cast our crown before his throne. Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. We acknowledge this. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We don't boast about our crowns. To those who want a place of leadership in the local church, and to those in leadership in the local church, I need to exhort you to heed the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning as we enter into this next chapter of Regeneration's leadership structure. Let us all recognize God's purpose for the church and help those who lead, lead willingly, not under compulsion, lead eagerly, not for shameful gain, and lead by example, not with a domineering spirit. We'll continue with our study of 1 Peter 5 in the next few weeks, and then we're going to move into 2 Peter. Let's pray. God, thank you for your timely word to us as we enter into this next phase of leadership here at Regeneration. And I pray for your discernment, God. I pray for your wisdom. I pray that you would help us to recognize if there are people you've chosen to be elders at this church. Help us to see that. And Lord, we don't want to add just for number's sake to our leadership structure. We want to do it because it's your leading. And so help us do that well. Help us do that in obedience and in submission to you. In Jesus' name, amen.